I mentioned earlier the story of Esther, Mordecai, and Xerxes is one of the more obscure and sometimes problematic stories in all of Scripture. Some scholars, they, they question the ethics of Esther and Mordecai. Others, they, they point to what would have been seen as a forbidden marriage between a, a Jewish woman and a Gentile king. Or, or they point to the celebration of the revenge killing that eventually took place. And some scholars, they just, they just look at the clear lack of, of connection to, to Esther in the grand narrative of the rest of Scripture. There's no mention of the law, no mention of the covenant or, or the temple or anything else that we typically associate with the faith of the people of Israel. Esther is the only book in the entire Bible that doesn't even mention the name of God. And here we are in a a series about God's faithfulness. So if you're sitting at home thinking, Dave, what are you thinking? How does this even connect? You're not alone. This was one of those weeks where I pulled out the series outline that I put together a few months ago, and I looked at it and I said, huh, you just don't hear that many sermons on Esther, especially referencing the faithfulness of God. But if we pay close attention to what happens as she saves her people, we see a series of of events that can only be described in, in one of two ways. These events, they're either purely coincidental, events that, that happen completely by chance, or they're events that point to God's providence. A, a reminder that God is always at work even when it isn't obvious. And the question, or really the challenge that Mordecai asks Esther in, in chapter 4 makes it seem like it's the latter of the two options. The story of Esther reminds us that even when we don't explicitly go to God with the decisions we're making, and even when we we take questionable action ourselves, that God is still up to something in the world. It also is a reminder that each of us has a specific role, a role in our family, a role in our church, a role in work, a role in our community. And though it may seem like those roles are insignificant or just a coincidence, We're placing them with a specific purpose. By the fifth chapter of the story, Haman is ready to kill Mordecai. He's at his wit's end. Every time he passes through the palace gates, his rage and his disdain grows. And meanwhile, Esther is doing everything she can to get the king's attention. First, she dresses in her royal robes, her nicest clothes, and she says, here I am, don't you see me? Then she comes up with this plan. She's going to host dinner parties where Xerxes and Haman are going to be the honored guests. And during the the second dinner party, she she tells Xerxes about her heritage, the secret. She lets lets him in on it and about Haman's plan to eliminate her people. And in this moment of poetic justice, King Xerxes, he has Haman impaled on the same pole that Haman had planned to use for Mordecai, and then he gives Esther all of Haman's estate. The Jewish people in in Persia, they celebrate, they go crazy. And then they go out and seek revenge against anyone related to Haman. It's it's actually one of the lesser-known Jewish holidays, but but many Jews who follow their their traditions strictly still still celebrate this, this conquering of Haman, this complicated conquering of Haman. It's a celebration called Purim, and and they follow just what Mordecai instructed. Picking up toward the end of Esther, we read this. 
Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews, so the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatta, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word Purim. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. The Jews, they they took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at that time appointed. These days should be remembered. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews. Nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, my guess is that at one time or another, most of us have had this sort of conversation, either out loud or in prayer, just in in our heads as as we've we've talked with God. One of those conversations where we say, God, what are you doing here? What's going on? I've asked this question so many times, but one time that sticks out came about six months after I began the call process of our denomination and began searching for a job as a pastor. I spent years preparing for to be a pastor, going to seminary, working in every imaginable role at at two different churches, passing all of the ordination exams, jumping through all of the lovely hoops uh, of the PCUSA. I had finished it all. I had had eight or nine interviews. I flew out to New Jersey as a final candidate at this, this one church, and it It just wasn't a right fit. It it didn't seem like anything was ever going to work out. Oh, God, what are you doing? One day, my wife Haley, she was at work teaching at an elementary school where she that she loved. And I walked from our apartment to this local coffee shop where I did most of my deep thinking and often argued with God. I'm not sure if I actually said it out loud, but I may have. And I definitely thought the words as I, I slumped down into my normal spot. Oh. God, what are you doing? What's the plan? And, and if there is one, when are you going to let me in on it? 
The last thing I wanted to hear at that point was a reminder to be patient or, or to hear someone misquote Jeremiah 29, 11 or Romans 8, 28 to me, reminding me that God had a plan and, and works out for all, all, all those who, who love him according to his purpose. I wanted to argue, to debate God's timing or my purpose where I fit in the plan, if there even was one. It's when we're in those places or in that headspace that we can relate to, to Mordecai walking around the city in sackcloth and ashes. He had to think his, his niece taking the throne would bring a, a new life to him, new prominence, even as a Jew living in exile. This was the moment that was going to turn things around. But it didn't happen. A few months after I slumped down in that coffee shop arguing with God, Haley and I, we made the decision to go to Malawi. Then we spent nearly uh, seven years in Huntington Beach serving a great church. That's where our three kids were born before arriving here three and a half years ago. I I can look back at at my life now and, and see God's hand or God's providence in each of those moments. But that day in that coffee shop, I just couldn't see it. During this series, I've invited us to to take a personal inventory of sorts. To honestly answer that, where are you question that first appears in Scripture when God searches for Adam and Eve in the garden. And last week, with the story of Joshua, I reminded us that it's often in the events or, or, or the trials that we go through in our past that, that we're prepared for what we're in today. This week, I want to invite you to honestly review your past, to, to look for moments over the last 5, 10, 25 years that might have seemed difficult. Really, write them down in a list. Reflect on them. If there were times where God was obviously present through a difficulty, write it down. But also write down the times where you had those slumped down times where you just said, oh God, what are you doing here? When Mordecai invites the Jewish exiles to celebrate Purim, he's inviting them to to build a habit of reflection of giving thanks. And to a degree, it's the same sort of thing that we're doing this weekend in American culture with Memorial Day. We remember where we've been as a country. We give thanks and, and we reflect on some of the difficulties. These habits, they don't erase the challenges that we face today, but they, they do help to give us some perspective on how we face them. At the end of the book of Esther, we're told that Mordecai is promoted to be second in command next to Xerxes. Something I'm sure no Jew living in exile believed would ever be possible. And I wonder if during that time he remembered the days of roaming the streets in sackcloth and ashes. I wonder if he saw God's providence in his journey at that point, if he grasped God's faithfulness. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the stories that, that leave us with questions. Lord, for the, the stories both in, in Scripture as well in our lives that, that kind of leave us with the, uh, what's happening here. Lord, remind us that you are faithful at all times and through all things. We pray these things in your name. Amen.